Hi there. I'm Six Foot Stereo. Welcome along to my podcast about the current state of music. My guest this time is a man who's synonymous with the Brighton music scene and over the years has played a big part in crafting that identity. Not only as a DJ and a producer, but as someone who helped open doors for many other artists, most notably it would be fair to say Fatboy Slim. During the 90s and into the noughties, he was the man at the helm of Skint Records. And I sat down with him for a very enjoyable chat about his history and the current state of music right now. And it's all backed up by a soundtrack of music that either he's responsible for or he put out on his label or have influenced him in some way. So sit back and prepare for an hour in the company of Damien Harris. Yes, uh, my name is Damien Harris. Uh, I... Uh, I'm also known as the Midfield General sometimes for my um, DJing and production. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm best known for running and starting Skint Records down here in Brighton. So as is usual in these podcasts, I like to go back to the beginning and find out about his earliest memories of music. I'm the youngest of five kids by some way. Uh, four, uh, three brothers and one sister. And my brothers were in a band, were in a punk band. So uh, Christopher, my eldest, was really obsessed with music. Um, so there was always musical instruments and he always, you know, had records and things like that. Um, one of my first actual memories is um, singing Telegram Sam and they were doing a radio show and um, they made me sing it under the table because the acoustics were better. I remember them coming back, for, they all went to see the Ramones, I think it's in 76 or something. And I remember waking up and they'd all just got back and were flabbergasted and just uh, stunned by it. And so, I, I mean, strange for a six-year-old, but I remember the first Ramones album really well. They did their first gig, so they were in a band called The Ignorance, but you spelt it wrong which I always thought was quite funny. And, um, Did they knowingly Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they were, uh, yeah, so... Um, and then they were, yeah, and they were good. And I remember they played their first gig in a local village hall in Whitstable, that's where I grew up, and my dad sort of holding me up to see them. Uh, they had their first single, they recorded a single. John Peel played it and my brother going mad being woken up by that so so yeah I was very lucky to have that and you know brothers that bought records and listened to things and always the enemy was always there so so I think when you're the younger brother and you're always sort of looking you're, you're keen to sort of emulate your you know, look, you know what you do what your brothers work like and things like that and then i think when the clash so 80 sort of one 80 81 and they started getting into they did stuff with futura um and radio clash and that side just sort of post sandinista um and that was when i first got my own thing and i and especially hip-hop and they did a track with um, The Adventures of Futura 2000 
um, which I bought just because it was The Clash. And I remember, yeah, that was quite a big record for me. And then early, yeah, early bits of hip-hop were coming in. And so that was my first thing that was me on my own. So a question that seems to be coming up with all my guests is whether or not they were alone in this interest in music at school or whether their peers were also feeling the same way. I was out on my own and I used to go to gigs. I mean, <clears throat> and another advantage of being the fifth is that, you, you, you know, mum and dad didn't really... Well, they did, they cared, but, you know, they'd let you go to... The, so I was going to gigs up in London on, you know, when I was 13, 14. So I, I still saw... I saw that, you know, I remember the early Smiths and so I saw the Smiths, Billy Bragg I loved a lot as well. So this was running at the, at the same time as sort of, you know, hip-hop and things like that. My, eldest, uh, my brother Philip said, uh, told one of my aunts, Damien's a, psych- a psychobilly beatbox now. And... Um, Bastard, and she still, she still comes up to me and goes, "Oh, you still a psychobilly people?" Because I was, I was going through a sort of meteors guana backstage, but also really into sort of hip hop and things like that. And so through the hip hop, I got into sort of rare groove. So I was wondering where he was getting this music from. Um, I would go up to London a lot because I was also really obsessed with graffiti as well. So I used to go up to, I would have my Saturday job and then I'd go up to London on, on a Saturday. So I'd be done on Saturday morning and then go up. And so I'd buy, try and buy a record from Groove on Greek Street. So I would always sort of get, you know, I'd sort of have one, I could afford one record. But there was lots of, Lots of old. I was working in record. Sh- I started working in record shops as well, okay. uh, around sixteen. So, um, but there was lots of old soul records. Or, you know, Margate and Margate and sort of which is just up the road. So there was lots of old sort of collections and. So yeah, so you the, the music was around. I was reading. The Face, ID. Um, oh, was it Straight No Chaser was around then. Yeah, so you'd pick up bits from that, and, um, yeah, and so and and yeah, John also sort of had rare green stuff. So just wherever you could get it from, really. So I then asked Damien what he did when he finished at school. I went to Canterbury Art College. I'd already started doing club nights there. So I had already started work. Um, I'd sort of become friends with a couple of people there and we did parties. And then, because my I, my mum died um, my last year at school. And so I, and I kind of had a lot of time off and I took the piss a bit, really. And so... I kind of would go and sort of do DJ at parties at the art college when I should have been, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I had already sort of set up there. So I went and did a foundation course um, and, yeah, was putting on nights at Canterbury Art College, did the first Canterbury Art, Canterbury's first acid house night. Um, and then started to go to like started to go to sort of like the wag and things like that, but on my own again, still on my own because none of my friends were uh, were into interested. I learned sort of quite a lot about putting a night on, and they were so good. it was really you look at how much you put into those nights, creativity, and we were, I would always get slides done and you'd decorate the student room you know at Canterbury um the student you know you decorate the bar and all those things so yeah it was um it was uh, a great time 
well, I then, so after foundation, I moved to Brighton. And the first thing I did when I moved to Brighton was made sure I got a job in a record shop. So, which was Rounder Records, uh, which is no longer there, sadly. But um, I, so the record shop in Canterbury that I worked in, and I, there was one point I was, I wanted to be a rep for a rep, for the major rep label because that seemed the most glamorous job in the world. They drove around in an estate car with white labels and t-shirts and things like that and I thought oh god I'd love to do that um, but I, I was very good friends with them and I came down to Brighton with a couple of them they would sort of they sort of brought me out and introduced me to sort of around so it was I was it now sounds quite calculated and maybe it was but um, yeah so I, I got a job there within two months of arriving in Brighton and then so that just means you meet everyone because but the, the Brighton didn't have a huge amount of sort of special. We were one of the few at the time. Um, so you meet every all the DJs, you meet all the promoters. Um, yeah, so that's that's handy. And then within six months, I was doing visuals at the Coco Club, which was the Saturday night at the Zap, um, which was the sort of the big sort of club night. And I started doing the visuals. And then started doing the sort of the back room and occasionally doing the warm up. So, in the in the same time, trying to do a really pretentious fine art course. So, which was again right in the middle of town. So again, three years of and putting on club nights, just completely absorbed. Yeah, really, right in the middle of it. So, and that's a great place to learn and get good at you know learn your trade and things like that and I would do lots of um, yeah do sort of DJ at bars and things like that as well oh the day is fading in my soul so then I was interested to know where where things took a turn and the DJing became more of a more of a lifestyle, I guess. I started to do the main Saturday night when Chris Coco went away. So Chris Coco would occasionally go and play abroad, sort of once once every couple of months, and I would take over. And that was big. That was sort of quite a big sort of thing. And I I always wonder. I could have pushed my DJing a bit more, but I was wasn't I wasn't pushy enough. Um, but I was. Um, I did things like I. So I used to do. Um, there was a, sh- a place called the Shark Bar, which was down on the front. Which I can't remember. The clubs change the name so often now. But it's near where the Fortune of War is. It's sort of one of those. Yeah. No, it was the one, the other side of digital. So digital was the zap. So just the other side of the steps, there was this bar. And I used to do that on a Saturday night. And you could, on a nice night, you would have 4,000 people out there. Um, And I, I was at the sort of top of my powers. I was sort of kind of, I was, you know, I'm rarely blow my own trumpet but I was quite good at that point and um, I had someone from the ministry which was just about to open and they really liked my set and they said would really like a tape and I spent ages trying to do a tape and then didn't get it quite how I wanted and and I, and I never followed it up and I, I just didn't yeah I, I didn't have that drive I had drive to do stuff because I was doing stuff all the time. But, you know, I I, I I was writing quite a lot. I started writing for DJ Magazine as well, so I was doing interviews as well. Well, it's that thing, you're torn. You're torn between it. I, I, you know, I loved doing Saturday Night at the Coco Club. It was, you know, amazing. And you felt like this was, you know, you were somewhere and it was, you know that feeling that this is a sort of genuinely really good place and it, the, that feeling of uh, that this has got something quite special and um, yeah but I, I 
don't know. I just can't push myself, and I always struggled with that. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was happiest running a label, because I could blurt on about the acts, but I couldn't do it about myself. I, felt, I, I think that, again, that gets beaten out of you when you're the fifth child. <laughs> And then I was just, I, I was at that stage where a lot of people in Brighton at that time was, it's a really easy place to do nothing. Well, you know, people would sort of graduate, you'd finish your course, and then you'd, I had sort of, as I say, jobs DJing, or, and I was doing flyers and doing things like that. And, um, and yeah, I had loads of friends who would sort of get a job at a bar or get a job on the pier. And then two years later, you go, oh, my God, I'm still here. And I was sort of thinking, right, well, if I want to do something, I always envisaged doing, being a designer, doing record sleeves and things like that. And then, yeah, I, um, I thought, right, I'd better move to London, I guess. You have to sort of move to London. And then the skin opportunity happened, and then Loader came, and I, yeah, had, had the sort of the studio to learn, and that was really exciting suddenly being out of my music. So I was interested to find out if he'd always had a an interest in making music or was it the opportunity arising that gave him the impetus to sort of have a go. Uh, I had always wanted to because I'd always been in bands I'd always set up bands with my friends and things like that and they were sort of always pretty awful and then I did lots of I did lots of sort of tape edits and things like that so the sort of the DJing stuff was I, I, I really like uh, sort of collage and a lot of my artwork was sort of collaged and things like that. So, so it was more in that sense rather than being an artist, artist, sort of like writing songs or anything like that. That didn't come na- particularly naturally to me. Um, so another thing that seems to be becoming a common question in these podcasts is if there was any formal music training at school nothing nothing beyond the normal I, I mean I knew how to play guitar so there was always guitars and drums I was I had spent two years trying to save up for a drum kit so all the sort of more traditional stuff was there and I am sort of just about competent on guitar and bass and drums but um, and and again, sort of piano slightly. But I I I'd sort of I was I knew a bit, but not a great deal. Um, and I really wish I'd learned piano. I mean, God, if someone bullied me into going right, learn piano, it will really be be really useful. Um, yeah, and you just, it's, it's very annoying. Um, but yeah, the, the moment someone, and at the time the studio was a, it was a sort of an Akai S1000 um, with an Atari and a few synths. Um, and the moment you learn it and someone goes, right, that's how you put it in. That's how you trim it. That's what you can do with it. Stunning. I mean, an amazing moment. And then all of a sudden you go, right, well, I've been building up for years this little library in your head of going, right, what that breakbeat, that noise, that sort of vocal sample. So, yeah, so that just unleashed uh, hell upon... Uh, uh, yeah, and so I've, I just spent so much time in there. So around this time, the Brighton music scene was really starting 
certainly in sort of dance music circles, was starting to sort of pick a, up a pace. So I asked Damien who else was kind of in his circle using the studio, generally around at that point. So, well, the other people who were using it, so Wildchild, Roger Wildchild used it a lot. Um, Cutler Rock, who was um, who used it quite a play, made house stuff. And the Playboys, which was Tim and JC, and they used to do quite big remixes. Um, so, yeah, so they were at all use it. I mean, I... Um, we were in Ship Street. Our offices were in Ship Street, and um, so which was right next to what was um, the jazz rooms and the reform, which was on 10, yeah, 10 Ship Street. So I would go to Shake Your Wig or I would go to whatever was on at the jazz rooms. I'd, I'd just work, go for a couple of pints, then come back, have a spliff, carry on working. And several times I fell asleep on the floor of the studio and then they would wake me up in the morning and go oh yeah uh, you've fallen asleep again and you left the studio door open you idiot So the next question for me was how Skint kind of came about and who who was involved at that point. Tim and JC. JC was the business mind. Tim was a DJ. Tim also ran, um, did a column in the record, in Record Mirror, and he had the Cool Cuts chart. So that was his sort of side, and he did he did loaded, and he was DJing at the time a lot. So. Um, so I did skin and then JC was the sort of the business side so I mean I couldn't have done it without him and having someone there who could pay an invoice or you know or, you know you, you know all of that so I mean I I yeah I wouldn't have been able I have no leaning or inclination on that side of things so um, thankfully he was there to sort of, yeah. As I said, because the infrastructure was there. Yeah. Pressing plants and accounts and things like that. So, yeah. So I asked him next about the sort of the arc of skin. What, what happened? What was the sort of big pivotal moment? where it felt like it kicked off well very I mean I remember the first with, with Santa Cruz if we had had the response to Santa Cruz I had it on a white label for about six months before and the response to it was always great and yeah we if that had been unloaded we'd have sold 10,000 easily and then we sort of put it out and we sold about 800 and I was mortified and I was just going, oh my God. And then we went through the other three and then it, it took a little while, but there was just sort of lots of little sort of points. Like we discovered that the Tom and Ed were playing Santa Cruz at, um, at the social. Norman went to the social, um, loved it. We started doing the Big Beat Boutique as well so um, there was just little things and then gradually sort of people were beginning to realise what we were and as I mentioned earlier you know then you start getting the tape so I think Bentley Rhythm Ace were our fifth fifth or sixth release so that had come after three releases and then you know we obviously were identified so um it all just starts gaining momentum and you start getting noticed a bit more and people uh, see get a bit more of an idea of what you're doing. And then I think it was about eighth or ninth release. I think we had Everybody Needs a 303. So again, just gradually the record's getting bigger, the club 
club was rich. We had a dreadful first night. We had about 60 people in. Uh, and then after that, everyone was full. And then suddenly it, it just caught. So it seemed to me that the Big Beat Boutique and what was going on there was very much a kind of shop front for what was happening at Skint. So I was interested to find out whether that was like a conscious decision to do that and to give people that might buy records from Skint a place to go and hear them first and to kind of immerse themselves in that world. Yes, exactly. It, it, it was always, it was always my intention to sort of play, have a club night, um, and it was. Uh, I, I mentioned the sort of um, superstar DJ and the super club thing, and that was getting a bit. That was quite dull, and that was quite pretentious, and um, and I think people were just ready. I think it goes in circles, and 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 you know, people were just ready for something a bit more, you know, down to earth. And the the Concord, which we where we did it, was a little sort of fish and chip shop during the day and it was sort of tiny you know, really low ceiling and it was perfect for us um so yeah so all of those things you it was all about being able to play what you wanted all about freedom and it was an extension of our the parties we had at norman's really and those parties at norman's we would just we had all of norman's record collection to play around with and um, yes, yeah, so it was really important, I think. And then at the same time as all of this, this sort of music of slightly higher tempo with the energy, it's sort of hip-hop machismo, energy of sort of acid house and kind of some a bit of rock posturing and sort of acid house euphoria. Yeah, and it, it sort of just goes, this is what we, this is what we are. And as a DJ... Me and Norman had that's amazing. You're really lucky if you get a crowd that goes along with you, that lets you do what you want and doesn't mind if you take it weird. And so we were very, very lucky. So success can often be a double edged sword and. I wanted to know if, as they got more successful and they sort of garnered more attention from the media and artists, whether that kind of changed the way they approached the business and the lifestyle. Um, we certainly not the lifestyle because JC, JC sort of quite kind of encouraged. Not um, that makes him sound like some sort of pusher, but um, he, he it was like we've got to enjoy this, you know. And so, if there was an awards thing or something, he says, "Right, we're all going, and we're you know we're going to enjoy this," which was great. And you sort of and people liked it when when people would come. So we got to a stage where we suddenly had four acts that everyone wanted so we were being courted by all the major labels and so that that sort of period started we had to make a big decision about do we want to be like lose everyone or just be a, a logo on a label and two people in a meeting room of 20 or do we want to do this ourselves and drive it and so we went for that option so we did a deal with Sony uh, which was sort of like a joint venture um, so everything came from us we sort of drove it and they had everything around the world so um, 
is fine at the beginning. I mean, you know, you're, it's quite exciting and you quite like going into sort of major labels and them sort of wanting to, you know, trying to sort of dazzle you. And But also when, you know, as Norman, as the lo-fis, as Bentley's all sort of got bigger and we were getting noticed and it was the sound of 96, 97, you know, you, um, yeah, you're sort of hot stuff. I can't believe I said that. But, <coughs> you, yeah, we were. And... So what happened was we, we did the first album with um, Norman, which was more like a collection of tracks. So that was um, Better Living Through Chemistry. Um, and we knew that sort of things were happening. And then he did... He did the Wild Child Renegade Master remix and he did Corner Shop. And you're, we were going, right, you have got something for us, haven't you? Because, you know, he, he, and they were amazing remixes and they were, you know. Um, and so then he delivered Rockefeller Skank. And that was the first single off that sort of what would be the sort of second album. Uh, and I knew then, and I, I, I knew. We got a test pressing cut and he played it at the boutique and I remember just the amount, the response and you sort of knew this was going to be, yeah, this could be. And then, and that just sort of kept going and then, then praise you and then, well, then right here, right now. And then you go, oh yeah, this is good. And then, but then praise you came along and you just went, this could be, you know, we could have our number one. Yeah. Not that that was ever a thing, but if you're in that situation, why not? You know, and and I think that was always a dream of mine to have. I, I always think there's about five or six credible pop records every year yeah. that everyone likes that sort of quite, that are quite cool. And I felt Praise You was that, and I thought, right, okay. So with bigger sort of labels and people involved, I wanted to know, was there any loss of creative freedom at Skint? Or sort of were they still able to keep control of all sort of the creative details that go with putting music out? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we once you sort of get up and running, and you have to, you have to let go of a few things, like when you, you know, with. But we had, um, we had, we got burnt quite early on with a video, um, but we so we were talked into for one of Norman's uh, for everybody that needs a three or three, and we were we sort of it was. Psst, 20, 20 grand I think which for us was just a fortune and we were thinking oh my god what and it was a really big thing just going right should we do this we could have a hit with it and we got this video it wasn't great Norman hated it Norman never wanted it shown and we were just oh my god what you know and um, and then he actually made his own one which is uh, this friend of ours, Perv, and he's, it's just him smoking a fag, and he's smoking a cigarette, and then someone writes, why write, why make videos on his forehead in lipstick at the end? Oh, I've seen that. I've yeah. seen that, um, that the bug thing. That right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so we... Yes, exactly. But we quite liked that. And then, so, you know, we'd, we'd sort of got this sort of fairly homogenised... I think it was a skating a pig. Someone in a prosthetic pig costume skateboarding. 
And um, so, yeah, so we, from then, we also went, right, well, let's do things a bit differently and do things a bit weirder. And then also the Americans made a video for Rockefeller Skank, which again was just MTV fodder and, you know, breakdancing and things like that. And it's just, oh, this isn't what we want. Um, and so, yeah, we knew and we were in a good position that we were people wanted to work with us and so John uh, my friend John Hassey he he sort of took charge of the sort of commissioning the videos and he dealt with that and you know we, we Spike Jones sent us I mean Spike Jones sent Norman a video going I've made this video for you I'm really sorry I couldn't do one but here's one I've made for you and that was the start of the praise you um, so yeah so yeah quite quickly we sort of got a name for that and we got a name for trying things a bit different and directors wanted to do that so it was sort of quite a getting a fat boy you know we we nicked a lot of that off Daft Punk because Daft Punk had sort of got Spike in to do a, a, one of their you know the funk and um, so yeah so in terms of that creatively it was sort of quite a good time and and eventually MTV sort of cottoned on. But again, that's one of the that's one of the sort of joys of it. Of having, you know, we had Sony International all set up. We've got this act that could be breaking around the world. And we come in with that praise you video. Okay, that's our video. And they're going, what the hell is this? And and you go that's the video it's brilliant it's genius can't you see that and everyone's a bit oh but it doesn't do that you know are there? and then you know and so to then get awards and it become what it did is a great feeling because you you had faith and you believed in nope this is what we're going to do and that yeah that was fantastic So after that initial success, what came next? Um, we sort of got got to sort of see the world. Um, I finally finished my album. Um, and I learnt a lesson about expensive videos there that uh, I won't go into now because it still hurts. Um, uh, well, the, the next, the Low Fidelity All-Stars really went big in the states um so um so yeah then the third norman album which was halfway between the gutter and the stars um that was quite interesting we our biggest mistake there was starting with bird of prey which was the track with jim davison which was a bit more sort of grown up and we should have gone with star 69 which was the big shouty sweary track and that is one of the sort of big regrets. And the thing was, I mean, the album still did... We still sold, you know, a lot of records. But it just wasn't wasn't quite the same. So we didn't have that sort of number one. But we had Weapon of Choice, which was obviously the Crystal Walken video. And so, you know, it was... It was all right, you know, and Norman just sort of got bigger and bigger as a DJ and, you know, and yeah. things like that. Just sort of financially, it didn't quite sort of hit the same point. But you're never going to. I think, I mean, interesting, I think Norman has, Norman's career up until that point had always been, he'd, I don't, he would have a huge hit. So he did it with Beats International, he did it with Freak Pay, he'd have a number one, have a good album, have a sort of, you know, do it, it did well enough to get a second album, and then he would feel the pressure on the second album, and he would get bogged down in it. And I would always try and sort of be more casual about it. And I think there's a little part of Norman that was sort of, right, well, now everyone's listening. Now I've got to, you know, and he, he I think it... I think it got a bit more difficult for Norman in the studio. And then, I mean, that which really manifested itself in the fourth album, 
um, which um, my psychiatrist said I shouldn't talk about. Um, no, that's I haven't got a psychiatrist at all. But that uh, did a lot of damage. That album. Um, yeah. So, and that sort of slightly increased. But I think that was a you know, I tried to kill off Fatboy Slim after the third album. Yeah, because I thought just start again with a new name and and free himself up but I, th- I think he sort of got a little bit too right I need to make a single for the radio and it's like we were going no you don't really and that's why we didn't do Star 69 because it had the line you know what is what but you know what the fuck and and it just thought well we can't they're not going to play that on radio and you're still having to play those games you know, even when you're successful, there's certain games the re- music industry have, so you have to get proper coverage in HMV and Virgin. What's the, you know, uh, you have to get um, you have to get a list on the radio. You know, all those sort of little boxes that you have to tick and press and all those things. So yeah, so there's a little part of you that's playing the game and and uh, yeah, and certainly sort of thinking, right, well, I need to make a record the radio are going to play rather than I'm just going to make a record for the crowd at the boutique, which was what the first album was. You know, Rockefeller Skank was the sort of the nuts moment. Right here, right now was the sort of euphoric moment. Crazy was the end of night and, you know, hands in the air and... So is it difficult to have success and stay at the sort of cutting edge which hooks those people in the first place? Is it difficult to maintain that? If we'd kept up that sort of cutting edge, the the, the sort of music being really good. Um, and I, don't, I, I actually think the third album was a better album than the second. Musically, but um, uh, yeah, I think you do you do lose it. It's very hard to keep it, and you, you have to be really strong. So I was wondering if there are any other sort of factors that you have to rally against. Well, one one big thing was um, the term big beat. I fought against that quite hard, and there was certain. There's a track called "Sounds of the Wickedness" um, that I just could not abide, and everyone go, "Oh, that's big, that's big beat." And when you think you're, I never thought we were underground, but I thought we were a bit more. And then when everything goes overground and it's, you know, and your music's on adverts and you're selling five million <laughs> copies of an album, you can't claim to be underground. And I st- stuck to that a bit too much. My reaction to that was um, you try and go more underground, I think, and you sort of deliberately turn against being sounds like So we signed... I remember we signed... Um, Dave Clark. So I, of, of my sort of things of music, so techno, house and kind of breaks. So we signed Dave Clark, we signed Express 2 and we signed Freak Nasty, uh, which I sort of saw as our sort of three big sort of money signings and, you know, the best of those different worlds. Um, and But still big, but still with credibility and sort of underground, I think. Um, so yeah, so that was around 2002, and then by the time everyone got to making the music, their albums, that was when the first sort of dance music lost some of its luster commercially, uh, and CDs and downloads and CD were starting to take effect. So this is also a common theme amongst all the interviews, and I guess it can't be missed, is about the the role of technology 
and it's quite well documented about how much impact technology's had on the music business. But I was wondering if it was just that, and what, there's obviously the downloads thing, but is there anything else in amongst the technology that had played a part in the music business changing? Well, uh, I mean, there was, there was a few stages to it. I mean, one of the things um, that sort of doesn't get mentioned so much is that um, magazines started doing CDs, cover CDs. And this was in the still relatively early days of sort of CDs. But, you know, dance music wasn't really on CD. And it was in that time there was this transition. So, you know, it was... You know, if music had sort of something, music with a said that magazine, or you know, one of them had a CD on the cover. That's, you know, that's a mixed CD that people wouldn't go and they don't need to go and. So that actually sort of started to chip away, um, and then CD burners in at universities. So you, so the first sort of CD burners were coming on the market, and you could you could do ten things at a time. So one person at campus buys the album and then you know you do the, a copy and you sell it for two they sell it for two or three quid so and students were a big market for us they were a big you know so those sort of things started happening with the digital stuff i i i was quoted on napster i was on the napster's website because i was asked about it and i said well we and and, and it came from truth at the time, but we spent a fortune on trying to get people to hear our records. So you're paying for radio plugging, you're paying for in-store, listening posts in-store and all those things, and club promotion. And I, so I said, but it's like a giant global listening post where <coughs> people can, you know, go and hear and, and you know, hear the record and then, yeah, of course, they'll go and buy it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was stupid of me. Um, I had probably too much faith in in the nature of man. And, uh, of course, they're not going to end up going and buying it. And CD, uh, CDJs started to, for DJs as well, started to become more sort of prevalent as well. So all of a sudden, your all your sort of income streams are just pulled out from underneath the rug. It starts affecting everything. Um, but what didn't change was that there was still... You could still sort of keep going on... Um, if you broke... There was still a lot of, you know, you could still be successful. Yeah. But they, they just squeezed the middle. There was this time I think everyone should have just stopped and the music industry should have just... Just everyone stop. What are we doing? How are we dealing with this digital thing? Um, but everyone was running around like headless chickens and sort of not panicking right let's sue them or oh no let's not sue you know and it was just yeah so when when a, an industry has that sort of it's sort of that devastating an effect and no one really knew what to do um, yeah so that that was all quite interesting and that's when it all got sort of yeah I'm starting to sort of not enjoy it so much but yeah so it's it's I mean, decimation's probably a bit too strong, but it's, you know, and we, we had always been very lucky in that we had Norman selling a lot and he could pay for us to do all the other things. And, you know, and then suddenly on the fourth album, Norman wasn't selling records. And then you're like, oh, bugger. Um, and then, yeah, so it changed from instinct and oh, I really like this record, let's put it out, to, right, how are we going to put this out to make some money and break this artist? And that wasn't so much fun. So it sounds like they've built up quite a family around Skint with 
artists who are doing well and obviously success and good times. But in a situation where that success is unsustainable, I was wondering how that put a strain on him and put a strain on the relations that he'd built up. Um, yeah, it, well, it, with me and Norm, we did a bit on for the fourth album, and it got quite frustrating. And um, and the more I, you know, he was sort of trying to get stuff. He was trying to come up with stuff, and I wasn't liking it. And yeah, I mean, the thing is, the weird thing is, we never sort of officially fell out. We just deal with it like men deal with it, and we we sulk. And we sort of don't. Right. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Um, and so we we had there was a bit of that went on. And yeah. So for a, a few years, it was a sort of a, yeah, it, just this sort of underlying thing that we never mentioned. And but the thing is, I mean, we're absolutely we're fine now, and we're, we're really yeah. No, no. It's 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 funny uh, and you know we've both been through sort of so much so yeah but at the time it, it is difficult and especially if, if it's not coming naturally and if it's for, you're forcing it and I would sort of and then also you know if you're if you're spending a lot of money on things and suddenly and then things don't work and yeah it does I mean I, I there's a few bits I mean I, I've had to sort of drop drop friends of mine and things like that and that's always very difficult and yeah so it um it does it does affect it and that was never really why i got into it So we got to the title of the podcast, The Current State of Music. So obviously, I asked Damien how he sees the current state of music right now. Uh, I think the current state of music is quite interesting, just for a bit of background. I'm, I sort of touched on it earlier. I'm, I'm sort of being lured back in after a few, sort of quite a few years out. Um, it seems, uh, I mean, the sort of democratisation of, you know, music uh, and equipment. This is sort of something that's always sort of run through the sort of skint story. You know, I start when I started, I mentioned that, the, yeah, we had an Akai S1000, you know, and, and, and an Atari. So the, and now you can do, you know, more on your phone than you could, you know, and all those things. So um, I always think it's interesting. I mean, one of my biggest fears is just how much stuff there is. You know, the the story that Beatport puts, God, no, you know, sort of 25,000. Uh, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, a ridiculous figure of new records every day. Um, and and that's a sort of a, always a slight worry. So I always, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of slightly afraid of sort of what's going to happen. But I, I think it just means you have to look harder. Um, I, you still, I can still find amazing records. So that is still there. You just got there's a lot more faff you've got to get through. Uh, and I don't mean that to be rude about, you know, other people's music, but... Um, so I think it's shifted, and I think it's... It feels more positive than it did sort of 10 years ago. And I think people have adjusted. I think you... The old model 
was not working and uh, you know and you still get the sort of upper echelon you know and the sort of ridiculously expensive videos and sort of things like that so uh, I'm, I'm torn there's there are times when I can go oh isn't this great everyone you know can create creativity is open to everyone it's um, it's really exciting and then there are times when you go there's just far too much of it but you know it still has the ability to excite you, you know, the Childish Gambino video that sort of came out this week. Still, you know, the uh, Janelle Monet album, um, the new DJ Cozy album, all still capable of jaw-dropping moments that, you know, make it all worthwhile. So I've really bottled out answering the question, I'm afraid, because, yeah, I, I, I see great things but you know the amount of friends of mine whose kids are in bands and sort of things like that and and these are things that we you kind of had to sort of fight for or struggle with you know when I was sort of younger Uh, so I'm always aware of sounding like an old sort of you know an old curmudgeon but um, yeah I'm going to say sometimes it's really exciting other times I it, there's just so much but you but you just have to sort of you know is it just a hobby then you know if if that's the case just treat it as a hobby if you get a few hundred people liking your stuff then that's great and ultimately that's kind of what it's about it's just is it is it are you doing this for a career are you doing this what's your motivation so yeah i've talked myself around to a sort of a positive outlook haven't i there And in this world of self-publishing, I was very interested to know what he thought about labels and their roles and whether we still need them. Um, no, I think they do, because we need we need filters. And we, we always have, and the, those are still the same. They're, you know, DJs or labels. <coughs> I will instantly look at a DFA record differently from you know another label you know so there's all those sort of labels I trust or um, Ninja or you know or Compact or you you know you yeah you you still need that filter because um, yeah because there's so much of it to go through um, so yeah I, I, I think it's it's still important uh, I, I mean there, there's this sort of the return of vinyl uh, sort of thing that's been going on for well, it's been going on for a couple of years now and which which is sort of quite interesting because you presumed it was um, <clears throat> maybe just a sort of a, a bit of a, a fad I mean I know that sounds ridiculous for something that's been around for so long but um, yeah and uh, I've, I've started doing a night um, just playing once a month in a pub, which is really good fun. But we we still are debating whether we should get some decks or just do a vinyl only set and things like that. Um, but yeah, I've got friends who've got sort of good little businesses going, selling vinyl. Um, so I think I, I think it's that choice. I mean, I'm not particularly upset sort of to see the CD go um, it's no great great loss they're a bit annoying but then yeah so um, I, I, I think the sort of streaming files thing will will continue to sort of get bigger and then uh, again there's a with, with the same thing that we had with um, Napster and a generation of people grow up not using, you know, not knowing, not used to paying for stuff or, you know, or buying stuff. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I think it will be our sort of generation, the sort of who will, will always moan about stuff. Um, yeah. I think ultimately convenience sort of comes through, you know, convenience will probably win and then 
things like vinyl, so I'm sort of gesturing towards your records, are a, a nice distraction and a nice little, you know, thing for people that want something tangible and uh, touchable. I mean, I, ha- I have this joke with my friend Rob, who, you know, and he said he, he buys a yard of Balearic. <laughs> and you- and, you know, you just buy, I'll just have a half a yard of uh, Worthy Disco and, uh, yeah, one yard of Balearic. And um, and he jokes that it's sort of quite a middle-class sort of thing. And, you know, and, and maybe that is the case, but um, it's. I'm, I'm glad it's still there. I'm glad it's sort of still an option and it sort of seems relatively healthy. It's just getting your head round, you know, when... You sell 300 rather than sort of 3,000. And so my last question for him that I ask all my guests is if they've got any advice for people either entering the music industry or setting out on a journey as an artist. Just make yourself useful. You know, I emerged myself in everything I could about dance music and DJ. So, you know, just when I was talking about the sort of early days of skin, you know, I had... um, I'd worked in record shops, so I'd bought records, I'd sold records, I'd designed records, I'd written about records, I'd played them, you know, it it was... uh, So it... I think, and even if you just sort of have to go and... You know, we would have sort of interns and sort of people come and do work experience. And I think it's just just get yourself in there. And even if you're just packing envelopes, I think still think that's useful and, you you know, it gets you into a nightclub and things like that. So I think um, emerge yourself as much as you can in that sort of world and just read up on it. And um, Yeah, it, I mean, and it, it kind of should be your life. It kind of should be your biggest hobby and if, if, if that's what you want to get into. Um, and as for musicians, I mean, I I don't know, it's a funny one. I, I sort of still occasionally make stuff as midfield general and um, and I've, I've got about 10 years worth of sort of half-finished tracks and things like that and I often sort of go, you know... Um, and the thing that sort of sort of struck me the other day, and I sort of have this once every six months, I'll go, just make the records you want. Because there is so much stuff. And, you know, and I would go through a stage of going, right, I'm going to try and make some really nice disco stuff. And then there's, you know, and this was one of the things with Skint as well, is that, you know, I used to sort of make house, try making house stuff and, you know, but... There was a hundred labels who, and you know, infinite amount of people making better stuff, that, or stuff that I could never, don't em, you know, trying to emulate. Make what's new and different, or you know, what's, you know, th- there's no point just adding to the sort of the over, you know, the, the deluge of stuff. And I think you should, yes, do that. And I think you know, and and. Just get your, if it's going to be a hobby, if it's just going to be something you enjoy to do, then that's fine. If it is something you, you know, if it's your burning passion and, uh, I mean, all the cliches of keep persevering, being true to yourself, you know. Uh, And, yeah, you do genuinely, you know. I think if you've really got talent for it, you, you know, you is there's more ways of getting heard now than ever, uh, and that should always sort of motivate you, really. So with that, we were done. We chatted for about an hour and a half, and we also covered the infamous party on Brighton Beach, where two hundred fifty thousand people turned up, and I'm going to save that for a little bonus. A little bonus episode, which will be out soon. But I was really humbled by Damien's warm and open approach. I'd not met him before, and uh, he came to my house and we sat in my studio and he paid for parking and then overran his parking. 
and he was just really generous and I've bumped into him a couple of times since and he's just a really nice guy that's a pleasure to spend time with. So I want to send a big shout out to Damien Harris for being my guest on the Current State of Music podcast. There are other episodes available if you want to go back and listen. If you can give me a positive rating on iTunes, that will help me. And tell your friends and share and like and do all that stuff. And uh, I think the next one we've got coming up is Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. Which hopefully should be with you in about a month's time. So thanks for listening today and take care of yourselves. We'll see you again soon. Cheers.